Hey friends, I wonder if you would call yourself an optimist or a pessimist? Are you a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? Um, I saw a couple of cartoons online. Uh, let me describe them for you because I can't show you at the moment. There's a man and he's holding a glass, pretend this is a glass, and the glass is half filled. And, and, and his speech bubble says, I, I don't know if this glass is half full or half empty. All I know is that the glass is only half clean. Or I saw another cartoon where there's a sign outside of a meeting room uh, and, and the sign's hanging on the door and the, door, the sign on the door says, Pessimists Anonymous Meeting cancelled. We didn't think anyone would show up. Now we are in a once in a generation crisis at the moment, aren't we? I wonder how you see it. Are you a half full or a half empty? Are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to this pandemic crisis that we're in? A friend of mine works uh, in the Al Jazeera news network um, as a nightly news producer there's a news bulletin from a couple of weeks ago. You remember when um, they were all, the, the bans first came in in terms of how many people could be at a wedding and a funeral. And this was how the news bulletin finished up that night. Religious services of all denominations are banned. Wedding plans and baptism ceremonies are on hold. Only funerals will go ahead. The virus robs the joy from society and leaves only grief. I don't know how you feel about that. How can we, in this crisis, see anything but hopelessness and sorrow? How can we, in this situation, not descend into gloom and darkness? Well, I want to tell you that the crucifixion of Jesus was the darkest day for him and for his family and for his friends, and for his followers. I mean, all of a sudden, this man who once drew crowds because of his teaching and his preaching and his authority is now snuffed out in an instant. But more than that, Jesus became like others in his time who dared to speak of an alternate kingdom to the great kingdom of Rome. You see, when Rome crucifies someone, Rome is making a statement. Now, let me just run you through what happens in a crucifixion. So the, the condemned person, it's usually a man, would carry his own crossbeam to the site of his own execution, of his crucifixion. And the vertical, uh, vertical upright beam would have already been staked into the ground. Now, when the man arrives, he would be made to lie down. And so his back is on the ground, you see, and, and his arms are stretched out over the horizontal beam. And then they would take his hands or his wrists or his forearms and they would either tie it or in Jesus's case, they would nail it to the cross beam with huge iron spikes. And then the cross beam would be raised and fixed to that vertical beam that's already in the ground. And then to that vertical beam, the, the, the victim's legs would be bent and twisted so that a single spike or nail could be driven through both heels at once. You can imagine how much that would hurt. But death itself was going to be slow. In fact, death was excruciating. That, that's where the English word comes from. It comes from the, the word to mean crucifixion, excruciating. See, for hours and sometimes even days, the victim would hang in the heat of the sun Stripped naked, struggling to breathe. He would have to, to, to push himself up with his legs 
or pull himself up with his arms every time he needed to breathe so that he wouldn't suffocate. But every time that that would happen, you can imagine the pain would be unimaginable. And then slowly but surely the body would simply give out. The person would die from heart failure or or brain damage from oxygen deprivation or or suffocation or shock or a combination of of those things. Uh, Crucifixion, you see, was the most horrible form of death reserved only for the worst of society, the worst criminals. Because it wasn't just the pain that was horrible, it was also, well, the shame. This was an honor-shame society, you remember, like many of the societies and cultures that we come from. Because there the condemned man would hang naked, completely naked, humiliated, and symbolically he's there suspended between heaven and earth. And that's for all to see. As I said, crucifixion was Rome's way of making a statement. And its statement was this, your leader is executed. His kingdom is crushed. Your hopes are destroyed. Now this is how Jesus died some 2,000 years ago on that Friday afternoon. You see, how in the world can this be anything but tragedy, an unimaginable tragedy? How can it be anything but darkness and gloom and hopelessness? Well, there's a reason that Friday is called Good Friday. That today, in celebration of it, is called Good Friday. Now, that's an outrageous claim. How, how could this be a good day? How could this be a good thing? How could this possibly be a good outcome? Well, this is how. Uh, the biographer John, who was one of Jesus' dearest followers and eyewitness of his death, his account poses this important question. I want you to listen to this one because this is really the dominant question that John wants us to ask in his account. The question is this, what if the cross was a throne? You got that? What if the cross was a throne? What if this defeat is actually a a victory? What if this humiliation was actually exaltation? What if death was actually life? Now that is what we really need to think about today. And I hope you see why this may be important for us. Because if the cross can be a throne, then you see no matter how dark or difficult our current situation or any situation we will go through in life, then there is always still hope, isn't there? There is always still good, still purpose and still victory. I'm going to pray. So let's join in prayer and then we'll get into this account that we just read earlier from John chapter 19. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray on this Good Friday that you would help us to see what is truly good about the cross. As Jesus hung there dying, as he gave up his last breath, as he says his last words, help us to see how this cross was actually a throne and and, and may that shed light on what we're going through right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to look at... Uh, three recorded final words of Jesus on the cross. I don't know if you re- re- recognize when we um, read that passage earlier, there's actually uh, three sets of recorded final words. And through them, we're going to see how the cross is actually a throne. You ready? Now, I'm going to look at it in reverse order, though, and there's a reason for that in a moment. So let's start, though, with uh, verse number 30. So that's the final recorded word. And you can see it there. I hope you have your Bibles with you, um, app or in paper. I'm going to have my Bible here. In verse 30, Jesus' final recorded words are what? It is finished. Right? 
Note, it's not, I am finished. He's not talking about his death as if now everything has gone. No, he says, it is finished. Or, or that verb finished there, it literally means it has been completed. It has been fulfilled. It's the kind of thing you say after you've completed a, a project or you've accomplished a mission. It's the declaration that what you've set out to do, you've now done. Work completed, job done, it is finished. That's the idea there. So you see, Jesus' final words is that sort of declaration, which means that he was on a mission, which means that he had a plan, which means that it was his plan and it was God the Father's plan, which he has now completed and fulfilled and finished. And so that's why, as we read it earlier in John chapter 19, uh, there's, there's stacks of references to the Old Testament prophecies from the first 39 books of the Bible. Um, verse 24, if you look there, it actually quotes Psalm 22, when Jesus' clothes gets divided. We won't read it out, but that's a quote from Psalm 22 in verse number 28. Look at verse 28. Again, Scripture said, sorry, verse 28 says, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Now, nothing is quoted there directly, but People think it's probably Psalm 69. Don't turn to it, but Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, an Old Testament prophecy or a quote. But probably the most important background to this whole chapter is Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to turn to that. Um, why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 is the background uh, the, the, the most important background, if you like, Old Testament background, to Jesus' death, no matter if it's coming from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this is the prophecy uh, from some 700 years ago of the suffering servant. So look at Isaiah 53, and I'm going to start reading from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These words written some 700 years before Jesus. It was a prophecy. This was all part of God's plan. And it was also part of Jesus' plan because all throughout John's biography, John's gospel, Jesus has himself been talking about his coming death and significantly uses the phrase lifting up. Right? He talks about his death on the cross as a lifting up. And so I want you to turn back to John and I want to show you a few places where the lifting up language is there. Look at John chapter 3, John chapter 3, 14, John 3, 14. Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus a few verses before the famous John 3, 16. And Jesus says, in John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, go to chapter 8. Go to chapter 8, verse 28. John 8, 28. Have a look there. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Again, lifting up. One more. John 12, 32. John 12, 32. Have a look there. John 12, 
verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Okay, there's a, there's a word play there. Um, lifted up is literally what happens, isn't it? When a person is, is, is crucified, lifted up on the cross, crucified on the cross. But you see, there's a word play because lifted up can also mean what? Exaltation. To be exalted, to be lifted up and set up in, in high authority over others. It's the kind of thing that happens, well, it's the kind of thing that happens to a king, isn't it? When a king is enthroned, he is what? Lifted up. And that's exactly the wordplay Jesus was going for. Jesus' mission was the cross. It was always the cross. But you see, the cross was not a defeat. Not the defeat of a vanquished king, but actually the victory of an enthroned king. That's the double meaning of lifted up. And that's why um, throughout John's account, um, Jesus, the picture of Jesus in John 19 and, and in chapter 18, last week's chapter as well, um, he has such kingly dignity, doesn't he? I mean, um, when, when Pilate and the Roman empire that Pilate as the governor represented, um, Pilate seemed to have authority, didn't he, Pontius Pilate? But yet, throughout all these accounts in the last chapter as well as this chapter, Pilate is the one who what? Well, he can't make up his mind. He thinks Jesus is innocent. He wants to let Jesus go, but he bows to the pressure of the people. Pilate doesn't look much like a governor, much less a king, whereas Jesus in this account remains completely in control. And of course, you see that, don't you, when Jesus actually dies in verse 30. He says, it is finished. And then it says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus is completely in control. He lets death come. He gives up his life willingly. No one takes it from him. He gives it up. And so you, you get that, um, that idea of giving up his life. Go with me to John chapter 10. This is the uh, Good Shepherd passage. Look at what Jesus said in John 10, 17. John 10, 17, just a few pages back. He says, verse, John chapter 10, verse 17. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. And verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You see there? Just like his death, he breathes his lust and bows his head. He gives up his spirit. He lays it down. And so there's another echo, a much more faint echo from right early on in the Old Testament. It's actually from Genesis. Do you remember God on the sixth day in Genesis, after he's created the whole universe, God stops working and he declares his work is finished and he uses these words, it is good, it was very good. Well, Jesus, of course, is crucified on the sixth day of the week, isn't he? And it's there on the cross that he also stops his work because his mission has been completed. And he declares that his work is finished and that it is also good, very good. So that's the first final word, which is really the last one. Let's go backwards again to the previous final word of Jesus on the cross, and see how that tells us more about the mission and why it needed to be accomplished. So verse 28, verse 28 is the, the previous final words of Jesus. It tells us that in order that scripture is fulfilled, Jesus says what? These are the words, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Now, already mentioned that this is probably a reference to Psalm 69. 
But commentators think it's more than a reference to this one psalm. You see, John is the only gospel writer, biographer of Jesus. Uh, There's four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is, of the four, he is the only one that mentions here that Jesus himself requested this drink. Matthew and Mark only mentions that this, this, this sponge with vinegar was given to him, but it doesn't mention that Jesus asks for the drink or that Jesus asks for the drink because he is thirsty. So John here, uh, his purpose is to make pretty clear that Jesus asked for it. He asked for this drink. Now, what's the drink? It's, it's vinegar, as it says, but it was actually a type of cheap wine vinegar, a, a sort of sour wine. Now, when, once you put that together, this drinking of wine is really, really significant because to drink a cup of wine from God in the Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament talks about drinking the cup that God gives you. It's actually to drink up God's judgment. It's to drink up God's anger against sin. It's in a place like Jeremiah 25. Don't look it up, but Jeremiah 25, 15 is where you get that from. And in fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 18, don't look it up, but John chapter 18, verse 11, when he's arrested, Jesus himself says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So in other words, here on the cross, Jesus is thirst. I am thirsty. His request to drink, him wanting to drink the wine is actually a very clear symbol of him wanting to drink up what the wine symbolized, which is God's anger. God's judgment, God's punishment for the sin of God's people as spoken of in the Old Testament. But of course, you see, Jesus is the perfect Son of God who never sinned. And so he wasn't drinking up the cup of God's anger against his own sin, was he? He was drinking up God's anger as a substitute. It was him instead of us. You see, the crucifixion, was for the sin of God's people as a sacrifice, as a substitute. And that's why there are all these other details in this account that readers of the Old Testament would have noticed. Jewish readers in particular, there was the hyssop plant. Do you notice that? The hyssop plant used to lift up the, uh, the wine vinegar to Jesus. The fact that Jesus was dying towards the end of the day, towards twilight. The fact that Jesus' bones weren't broken, even though the two thieves next to him were. And the fact that all of this happened at this incredibly, incredibly important festival called Passover. If you don't know about the Passover, the Passover is, the, and to this day is still, the Jewish commemoration of God rescuing His people from slavery. And how did He rescue them? By means of a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb. And this lamb, there were instructions about it. It had to be perfect, no bones broken, not cut up. It had to be sacrificed whole. And when would you slaughter the lamb? It was going to be slaughtered at twilight, at the end of the day. And then the blood of the lamb was to be painted on the door frames of Israelite homes so that the angel of death would pass by them. And it would be painted with what? A hyssop plant. And this blood would protect them from judgment. So you see, all of those symbols, Jesus now is, is, is bringing to himself. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb, you see. That's what the cross was about. It was way back when John the Baptist first sees Jesus in John 1.29. Remember John the Baptist's words was, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The cross was about sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of substitution. And so Jesus' words, I am thirsty, points to that substitution. In his thirst, you see, he was offering us a chance to quench our thirst forever. Do you want life? Do you want relationship with God? Do you want your sins forgiven? Well, Jesus right now is offering you all of that. He's saying, come to him because he died in your place. He was punished for your sins. He was thirsty so that you might never have to thirst again. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus said there, John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus offers living water that quenches our thirst. But how does he get it? How does he give it to us, I mean? He thirsts. He thirsts, drinks up the wine of God's, the cup of God's anger in our place so that we would never have to be thirsty again, so that we could have the water of life. And, and that's, by the way, if you want that little detail at the end, you know, Jesus is pierced on the side by a spear. Um, the, the Roman soldiers checking that he was dead. Uh, John notes that blood and water flowed out. Now, there's a medical reason for that I won't go into, but symbolically, that's really important, isn't it? The blood of the lamb flows out as well as the, the living water of life. Jesus thirsts so that his living water could flow out and we could have our thirst quenched. All right, that's the second um, last words of Jesus. Now we're going to go backwards to the third, which is the first in the account, last words of Jesus. It's in verses 26 and 27, when uh, Jesus, uh, near the cross of Jesus, stood his mother. And then verse 26, when, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, that's how he refers to himself. Standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And then verse 27, he says to the disciple, here is your mother. And then we read that from that time on, this disciple, John, takes Mary into his home. Now, it's a really lovely picture, isn't it, of, of Jesus tending to his own mother's needs, even while he is bleeding and dying on the cross. Again, I just feel like this is such an image of a kingly dignity, of control, even at the cross. But more than that, you see, Jesus here is importantly doing something. He is redefining, he is creating new bonds of kinship. He's creating new family, new relationships. This is now a family no longer defined by blood relation, is it? His disciple John, his mother Mary, and yet now mother and son in a, in a, in a real way. Because now people's relationship are not defined by blood with each other, but by their relationship to him, if you like, through his blood. Because through Jesus' death, a new family, a new kinship is formed. One of the lifting up passages we looked at earlier, John 12, 32 says, When I am lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. See, his death draws people into a new family, into a new community of brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children. Out of the ashes, new life is truly born, isn't it? Even as Jesus is cut off from relationships, New relationships are created. Isn't that a precious thing to remember at this time when it's so easy to be selfish, so easy to feel alone, so easy to feel isolated? So friends, I hope you see the cross 
truly was a throne. It wasn't defeat. It was a coronation of a king. And so that's why in, uh, earlier in verse 19, you know, the whole thing about Pilate writing this sign and putting it up, um, saying this is the king of the Jews and the Jews themselves wanted him to change it, but he didn't change it. And uh, there's such irony, right? There's kind of a twist to that, a, a hidden meaning. Um, Pilate wrote it to mock Jesus, right? Like all the so-called kings who dared to defy Rome. He's saying, Hugh, look at your king, humiliated, dead. But actually, Pilate's words, the sign was completely true, wasn't it? It was completely true. Jesus really is the king because the cross is really a throne. The place where everything seemed to spiral completely out of control. The place where it seems that darkness won, hope killed. Well, that's exactly the place, you see, where God was most in control. That's exactly the place where God achieved the greatest good ever. And isn't that the good news we need right now? Because if the cross is a throne, then friends, don't you see? If the cross is a throne, then you can trust in Jesus, whatever the circumstances. You can trust him for your salvation, your eternal destiny. You can trust him in the pandemic. You can trust him in unemployment. You can trust him in sickness. You can trust him in loneliness. You can trust him in fear. You can trust him even in death. You see, especially in those times, God is nearer, his presence and his power is dearer, and his victory is most assured. Because Good Friday really is that good. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that the cross is a throne, that what seemed to be defeat was victory. And even as we celebrate Good Friday here in a way that we've never celebrated before, with so much going on, thank you, Father, that because these things are true, Good Friday truly is good. And so today, help us remember that. Today, help us enjoy that. Today, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.